Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of DevOps Decrypted. I'm your host Romy Greenfield and joining me today are Jobin, Rasmus, John and a new guest Ben Davies who is a senior software engineer on the Scriptrunner for Jira Cloud team. Hi everybody. Hello, hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's good to be back. So today we're going to be discussing a bit of DevOps in the news. Twitter. Elon Musk, what do you guys think about this? How is it still alive? What's going on? So I'm not going to come out as a Musk fanboy or anything of the sort. And I think terrible things are happening. But I do think that he doesn't operate out of a vacuum. He he sees there there are issues and then he goes in and disrupts the heck out of things. In Twitter's case, I'm not sure it's going to lead anywhere positive. I, I could imagine that a year after, if Twitter is a tenth the size it was on like active users, okay, that might be the the thing. But there probably were issues there. I mean, with with Twitter not being profitable and probably you know bloated in some ways, it's it's a hard balance between something a tool that became such a a global phenomenon of importance of like politicians all over the world using it as their primary sort of thing, yet it's not a business. And I kind of lean towards the idea of liking having something there, but I can understand why somebody says, this is not a, a terrible business, we're going to try to fix it. And whether or not that works, ultimately, it's probably a good thing for the industry, because it gets disrupted to the point where all these new competitors start just coming out of the woodworks and doing things differently and really just hopefully lands in better shape than it was. But Twitter itself. Eh? <laughs> I think there's a lot to learn from this story, right? I mean, it depends on which angle you look at it from. Uh, because from a pure business point of view, it, it's true that Musk paid a lot more than what Twitter is actually valued. I mean, the fair value price was like 25 billion, and he ended up paying 44 billion. So from a pure business perspective, yeah, he needs to do some things to save it, uh, save the money that he invested in it. So he had to cut off a lot of fat, even though people don't like when we say it that way. Uh, but he had to do something from that perspective. I think a lot of the a lot of the problems arise from the fact on how he did it, actually, right? It's not that he fired a lot of people. A lot of companies are doing that now, now that the recession is upon us. The fact that he did it in the worst possible way, that yeah. is what is causing a lot of problems right now. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's one of the nature, the nature of Twitter as a platform and the people that would want to work, work there. It's always going to happen out in the open and the, the dirty laundry is going to be right there. Um, so I, I don't know whether it was just a conscious decision to really front, front it up and do it all out in public and um, things yeah. there to, to look at preventing leaks and. Um, and the, the, those kind of things. I think, it, yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating how it's how it's played out and how he's treated his investment. I think yeah. um, sometimes uh, any publicity is good publicity, right? So to me, it's almost like he's just gone. Well, if I'm going to be doing lots of massive changes and people aren't going to like it, but some people might, I might as well do it all out there, get loads of people interested. I was tempted to sign up to Twitter just to get go and look at all of the chaos that was happening so maybe that maybe that's worked wait what you were not on twitter before <laughs> look 
I, I'm an archaic dinosaur. I don't really, <laughs> I never really understood Twitter. Um, so I just let other people go on Twitter and tell me what's happening on it. I think uh, one potential interesting part to this is how is Twitter still online? Like from a technical or DevOps perspective, since, you know, mm. DevOps decrypted and all that, how is it still running? Which kind of validates probably what Musk is doing, right? He what he's saying is I don't need this many people to keep Twitter running and make mm. it profitable. That is probably exactly the kind of message that he's sending out there. Um, now keep in mind that this has caused a big damage to his reputation, right? Uh, I think there were posts coming in yeah. New York Times, Washington Post, all over saying that Musk is not the genius that he was when when he went and did Tesla or SpaceX. So it is causing a lot of harm, not just to his reputation. I mean, the Tesla prices went way down, down the gutter. I think he's not the uh, wealthiest person anymore. So that's yeah. done a lot of damage in that sense. But he is, you know, doubling down and making sure that uh, he is running the way to do, uh, he wants to run it, right? And it, it is, you know, there's a, it's becoming maybe not a cesspool, but all the moderation teams and things going away is bad for the platform. But again, it comes back to the whole bit about what, what, why is, how is Twitter a business? What is its, what is, what is its purpose? That's the sort of longer term output or what's going to happen here. But just from a purely technological perspective, it's probably easier to keep something online than it is to keep it pretty. Yeah. I, what, what, another angle I think it might be interesting to, to look at is, you know, what, what others do as a reaction. So I, I feel like there might be some cargo culting of Musk's management style and the things that people are doing things without really understanding why. And the things that's, that's one of the things that he's not really explained is objectives of things. It's all been what has actually happened and what's, what's been done without actually really looking at what was the under, what was the underlying purpose and objective of um, things. So I, I wonder if there's, if there's going to be lead leadership who, so see what see what is done, and you know, sort of see it as a as a prototype without really without knowing why. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> that's another thing that might be worth worth exploring. I think this is going to create a lot of case studies, whether Twitter become a success story or not. Either way, yeah. there's going to be a lot of case studies coming out of this particular event, <laughs> saying that okay, hey, Musk was right. That's the way to lead a company like Twitter, or Musk was not right. This is how you fail as a leader, right? And what's the <laughs> difference truly between a profitable business and a reputable town square? They're not necessarily the same thing. Exactly. And there was this interesting poll that Musk himself did about whether he should continue as a CEO or not on Twitter, um, <laughs> unsurprisingly. But uh, majority of the people said no. And he's probably going to resign as a CEO as soon as he finds a foolish person enough in his own terms <laughs> to lead Twitter. So we'll see. But he didn't he didn't finish his poll though, did he? He didn't do what he said he was going to do. Well, that, that was a caveat. <laughs> I mean, as, as soon as he finds another person foolish enough to take on this role. Yeah, but I, I could have put caveat into vote, the Brexit vote and then just not done it because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I think he should have stayed true to his poll. So do we have any predictions for 2023 in terms of whether Musk will resign or not? I am I want to predict that he's not going to. I think he's just going to keep holding on. I think we should ask ChatGPT. We should probably do that. That would be a great idea.
<laughs> Nicely on to another thing um, that's been very popular of late, ChatGPT. Um, have any of you been playing around with ChatGPT? Yeah, uh, I, I have when it's been available. Um, and, and this has been this has been been the uh, the, the 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 problem of late with it. Um, but it, I think it's uh, it's a super powerful powerful tool. Um, and and for me, it's this combination of of the technology, but also the user interface, and it's that that combination. So GPT three has been around for a little while, and it's been used in a bunch of things. Um, and frankly, Chat GPT isn't much of an advance on that on that. But the ease of use of it and the interaction model is is is, is significantly put it into people's hands. And um, I think it's uh, it's transformed people's like the people that where, where you where people work um and how they how they interact with things so i, I personally use it in my daily workflow when it's available um so sort of helping, mm -hmm. helping draft, draft email or, or or you kind of work work on ideas you can kind of explore you can explore things um uh with with it and there's there's a there's a lot of um kind of noisy um use cases like getting it to, to write write creative things or, or those sorts of things but actually there's some really good boring use cases as well, just helping you work through ideas. Um, oh, yes. Things. Um, That's what I'm doing. I'm doing boring things with it. I'm making it write my Ansible scripts for me. That is pretty good at that. It beats trying to search Google for like just the right use case. It, it's much more of a smooth interface in that case. So I can see why somebody like Microsoft would want to retrofit Bing to just work that way. So that'll be that'll be interesting. And for the sake of our listeners, I would say this, we have a Slack channel in our company uh, specifically focusing on chat GPT. And it, it, I would even argue that it is people like John and Rasmus who has brought it down, you know, so many, so many different queries sending, <laughs> sending to chat GPT. Well, I say it works fine in the, in the, in the morning and then, uh, and then North and North America wakes up and then it disappears offline. But blame it all, all on us. <laughs> I would say, I mean, ChatGPT definitely revolutionized the way people work. Uh, in my mind, at least, when it comes to artificial intelligence, it was all about face recognition until now, right? Obviously, you know, uh, companies like AWS has been um, investing a lot on AI recently. Uh, Microsoft is another another good example. Uh, but ChatGPT came as a surprise. It basically changed the way we work. Uh, everybody has been Googling for a while. And you know, relying on uh, Stack Overflow for uh, your code snippets, but as Rasmus said, now it's much much easier these days. You know, you just ask the question to ChatGPT. There are so many, so many different examples. We were asking questions about regets or uh, how, how do we write, uh, you know, Apache redirections, right? Whatever it is, so so many, so many different use cases. Even even ask it to write blog blog posts for us. Yep, or making DevOps predictions, or making DevOps predictions. That sounds a good example. Well, well yeah. Well, I, I kind of want to throw in a prediction about ChatGPT and the um, I think, and I, I I suspect that ChatGPT will will look back at it as a um, as, as 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 much of a significance as when Google came in and made search use usable and and, and work. Um, so I, it, I think it's kind of like an epoch moment in the way that humanity thinks about things and, and kind of op operates. There's my prediction. And so I, I might be over-egging it, but 
that no, I, I, I kind of right. feel like that's um, this, it's it's that significant. Yep, I think that's right. It's an inflection point. Uh, it's going from where for years now, when somebody brings up AI in a business context, my my eyes just roll over. Like, okay, sure, yeah, you're using AI for business, right? Then chat GPT and like, oh yeah, now we're there. And I'm still not convinced any of those businesses using AI and machine learning as buzzwords were really truly doing anything radical with it. But now we're there. Well, I mean, just recently, Microsoft actually released Bing, which can then create images as you type in words into it. So A is definitely becoming popular. Believe it or not, I mean, it is going to be used in businesses. And if, for example, uh, Romy, we were talking earlier about creating a new uh, banner for our DevOps decrypted podcast. I mean, earlier you had to rely mm -hmm. on our company uh, partner like Brew to create that design. Now all you have to probably do is, you know, go to Bing.com and do a search and, you know, ask it to create a, a, <laughs> a graphic for us, right? Things are becoming so much easier these days. And A yeah. definitely plays a big part in that. What was yeah. also interesting is, you know, chat GPT, a lot of people are not going to like it. Like in New York, uh, in the public school, they have actually uh, said you cannot use chat GPT at school because uh, students were using it to, you know, write their assignments. Which is a brilliant use case for it because whenever you're, my opinion, whenever you're developing, we always use little modules and we use little um, libraries that people have created before to do the legwork for us so that we can use that to then create something new and something bigger. So surely, actually, you should be allowed to use that to do your homework so you can build on top of that. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the uh, knee-jerk reaction bannings are, you know, short-sighted and like, we don't know how to deal with this right now, so we're going to ban it. But long-term, that is a much, much bigger impact because it has been, you know, the way to bring up students is by having them go through these essays and research and things like that. Now you can ask an AI, which is great if you actually truly needed to make a research paper on something interesting, but a lot of them for students is just learning the process. When you suddenly have a tool that can just skim all that, how do you teach them to still know the process? Mm. Exactly. It's not going to replace uh, software engineers just yet. But I have seen even some of the students um, that I teach have been using it to get some information uh, that usually they would ask a tutor or they'd ask, ask another student. And it's been really helpful for them. I have said with a caveat, don't always trust what it says, but it's nice that they can use that. Absolutely. I think there was an interesting post in one of our random Slack channels which said, yeah, AI will not take your job, but people who know how to use it will definitely take your job. <laughs> exactly. Watch out. Yep. And as far as prediction goes, it is sort of a an interesting angle on it because if you ask it about you know making DevOps predictions for 2023, what you get back depends on what you put in in the first place. Mm. If you just want predictions, it'll give you the boring run of the mill what everybody thinks on the internet, which isn't very informative. If you ask it to go outrageous in making predictions, you get some interesting stuff, but it's probably not super relevant to what's actually going to happen. Although I wish we'll get nanotech in 2023, but you know. And that was one of the outrageous predictions, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Cloud, cloud native technologies. And what, what else was there? I, I don't remember. Like, 
So we had quantum computing, blockchain, virtual augmented reality, neural networks, self-healing systems, you know, language system, nanotechnology, and then for some reason, edge computing. That sounds kind of not outrageous. So it's it's a mixed bag. Ooh, brain computer interfaces. <laughs> That'd be great. I would say quite quite outrageous, given that, you know, self-healing systems, that's great to talk about, but we don't really have self-driving cars yet, right? I mean, we had been predicting about that for years now, but it's not fully autonomous yet. So maybe self-healing system, it's going to take a few more years. Yeah, this is more like a, a decade or two, for some of it at least. And that is an interesting aspect of chat GPT. You can drive it into different directions. Uh, you, you can be good with it and, you know, get good answers out of it, but then you can be outrageous and get really, really outrageous answers from it. Uh, I think it's all about how you treat AI. I was going to say, you should probably be nice to it if it's going to take over in the future. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I use the word please a lot. <laughs> I, I, I thank it. Not because I have to, but yeah, you, you're trying to teach it to be a nice citizen, right? Should we talk about what us humans predicted about DevOps in 2023? Definitely. I know that we've been looking at some predictions from a human level for 2023 and what the future has for DevOps. John, I know that you've uh, been writing an article about that. Yeah, well, one of the, one of the things that um, pe people ask me to do, and my, my position as C CTO is, is to sort of attempt to predict predict the future and things, which is kind of pretty pretty much impossible um, to predict the future. But what what I've, the approach that I tend to take on these things is looking at the trends and look where 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 are things going. Um, so actually, one one if one one of the things that I was um, that I predicted and we, uh, we we had published was there would be more of these. Um, uh, browser development environments that that come along. So there've been some real um, work with uh, like Cloud9 um, and and kind of Git Git pods. And early this year, so GitLab sort of an, an announced their their kind of browser development environment as as, as well um, in there. So that was one I'm like I've kind of having having predicted that in November. I'm like yeah, that, I'm, uh, there's 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 at least one that's um, that, that's useful in 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 that 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 direction. The the other trend that I, is, I see is it's kind of shifting to serverless, and lots of organisations kind of skipping containers as a um, mm. as, as server metaphor and going direct directly to serverless ma ma manage manage services and things, um, and kind of build building on those higher level um, abstractions that cloud cloud providers um, give. Um, and and I think that I mean strange enough that hooks up with the. Um, with the kind of the chat GPT's prediction about edge edge computing of the uh, things, but that that's another one of the trends which we hook hook together that actually I think you can see developing over the over over the the, the, the next the next year year or two. So yeah, I'm nothing nothing out nothing outrageous from, from on my part, but those are, those are some of the things. I, I I kind of get the feeling that you can indeed predict future. You can guess. <laughs> you might not be right. Yeah. So, yeah. It'll be, it'll be about looking at looking next this 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 time next year about you know how 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 many how many actually came came true. Exactly. Yeah. I've wondered from time to time is if serverless is going to be become sort of the Achilles heel of something like Kubernetes, or if Kubernetes will itself be able to offer so much serverless like the GKE autopilot and so on to stay ahead of the pack. 
I, I think it will evolve in that in that in that that direction and there things um there's a there's a really interesting discussion I was following on 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 Twitter um from um let's say Kelsey Hightower was talking about don't focus on where your code will run focus on the business value that your code is going to be provide and um so whether it's going to run in a in, in a lambda or whether it's going to run in a container or whatever is that's the packaging and the wrapping up of the thing so if you if if you focus on like the intent of of what your service is going to do, then where it runs makes less, you know, like le less le less impact. And I guess it's not like it isn't all those communities behind the scenes anyway, because you know something's going to host your serverless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just who manages it. That's the that's the question. There's always there's always some some something there, and and there are there are kind of serverless projects and they're running on Kubernetes. And I'd love to see some of those some of those kind of come come towards. Um, some of like like the functionality of of, of lambda and and uh, yeah is the um is your functions and, and and things speaking about that that there is one of the predictions that we have in our blog is the increased reliability or investment in site reliability engineering and that probably is going to go hand in hand with this people are going to worry about the reliability numbers and you know how how reliable your infrastructure is right? Well, yeah, and I, I think with the move move to serverless, a lot like it's it's the same it's the same kind of skills, but applied in a different area. And and this like and this is like where organizations that are able to learn and got good feedback loops and those things that they're going to have the advantage over those who are kind of stuck in that. You know, this our teams run this platform, and and that's just, this is the platform that they run, rather than this is the customer that we serve and. We want to make sure that the experience we're building for us for our customers are um as you know as as good as as good as possible uh so while it's free management we kept talking about last year and there are all indications that that's going to carry over to this year and will become the next huge thing um i, I think there were a lot of reports about you know in fact our own matt sanders who was originally a host on the devops decrypted podcast he actually wrote a blog about it uh where he's quoted num some numbers. The Value Stream Management Consortium has produced a 2022 report, uh, and there was notable increase in terms of actually four times increase in the number of respondents implementing a Value Stream Management platform, which was very interesting. And so many other numbers that he has quoted in that article all point into the fact that VSM is going to be much, much bigger in 2023. Yeah, I could uh, guess that. I'm wondering what the value stream over at Twitter is right now. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so let's move on to something that we've released recently um, as a company at Adaptivist um, and some inside info from the DevOps procedure on the script runner for Jira Cloud team. Uh, so a few of you might have noticed that we recently uh, released behaviors um, on script runner for Jira Cloud. And luckily, we've got two of the engineers that were actually working on that release um, on the call with us. So we've got Ben Davies, uh, who's a senior software engineer, and Christian Walker, who's a software engineer. So welcome, both of you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, thanks for having us. So we'd like to ask you some questions. So how come it took so long to bring um, behaviors onto Script Runner for Jira Cloud? And what kind of challenges um, were you faced whilst implementing that? So I think the reason that we didn't bring behaviors straight over to 
cloud was because we actually couldn't. Um, one of the problems with cloud applications is that Atlassian sandboxed them, um, which means that for us to actually develop new features, Atlassian have to provide us with a set of um, APIs for us to build upon. So we basically had to just wait for Atlassian to realize how important behaviors is for customers before we could start working on it. Um, I think one of the things that's come into play here is the migrations. So at the moment, Atlassian are trying to get customers to migrate over from server to cloud. And I think one of the key migration blockers for a lot of customers is that they want uh, behaviors on cloud. So fortunately for us, Atlassian have come along and they've, um, they've decided to work with us to provide this new API called UI Modifications API, which allows us to provide the features that are available on server for behaviors. Awesome. Um, so from a DevOps perspective, um, how did you address um, stitching together the two different technologies um, that have brought behaviors onto Script Run Futura Cloud? Because uh, I know that one is built on the Connect framework, and Behaviors is actually built on Forge, which is the new framework that Atlassian have released for Jira. Um, so yeah, what what kind of things did you have to do and what kind of difficulties did you have with that? So one of the, yeah, so you're absolutely right. One, one of the key issues was Atlassian, whilst they provided us these new APIs, they've only provided us them on the Forge platform, which is something that we'd never worked with before. And Script Runner is, yeah, it's complete, it's already implemented using the Connect framework. So we needed a way to stitch the, together these two different technologies. Um, so one of the major challenges throughout the course of it was trying to work out a way of how do we get these two technologies to communicate, because I don't believe anyone had ever actually done this before. So we started off taking this iterative approach, which meant that during development, we could regularly evaluate and gain feedback really early on on the feature. Um, one of the other things we started to do was um, we implemented feature flagging which meant that as the feature was being developed, we could get a good idea of like customer feedback and things like that and have it running on a production environment so that we didn't end up with this problem at the end of the project where it was like we were going to deploy and then all of a sudden our feature only worked on our development environment. Another major issue that we've had with the product was towards the end of it and that was to do with the observability. So. When we're developing our Connect um, framework application, we're regularly working with AWS. And AWS for us is providing like a massive amount of features. So we work primarily with Lambda functions, but with those, they come with uh, metrics and we can then easily apply monitoring. So we can get alerting on when something's going wrong with our application and what specific part of the system is failing. Um, one of the problems that we have with um, Forge, which is the new platform as a service that Atlassian have provided, is whilst it will notify you that there are certain errors with something, it won't actually tell you the specific part of the application, for, which for us is really crucial when building a production application. So it was really frustrating towards the end of the project where it was like, we, we built this thing, it was ready to go out, but then we realized we couldn't actually monitor it successfully. So we, because we've been working closely with Aston, we managed to provide feedback to them about their platform. And I think they are, they've taken our feedback to heart and they are working on these changes, which should improve development for you know, people who work with Forge in the future. Um, but one thing which was, really, which was really frustrating during that time was that we had to build our own in-house Forge metrics um, service which would then provide us that key information so we could actually release this to customers and get an idea of whether or not it was running correctly or not. Yeah, there was a lot that went into this. Um, I know that as well, I feel like we had a, a few kind of deadlines in 
in our heads about when this was going to be released. Um, can you tell me a bit about like how uh, the team dealt with the ever-changing deadlines and um, on the actual release date, did anything go wrong? So luckily we had a very good project manager in Jill who sort of kept everything sort of well documented and we just sort of kept building as much as we could um, until when we promised we were going to build it. Um, but we, we were sort of met by challenges from Atlassian where they were promising us um, bits would be built already by a certain date and then they would push them back, which obviously meant that we had to communicate that to our customers, um, which was hard. Um, and in terms of release, um, well, the first time we tried to release, um, it failed. Yeah, so we released, we turned it on live, um, and we found it wasn't working as expected in production. Um, so we then had to then roll back and then go come back the next day and re-release, which was challenging. Yeah, not not exactly what you want when you're <laughs> releasing planned, yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for the people who are not so familiar with Forge or the Connect platform, so what are some what are the technology that uh, behaviors of script runner runs on is it all in aws um is it serverless is it on kubernetes what what exactly is the technology that powers it so um so script runner as a whole is, on, is built using the connect framework and that's all completely built on aws um pretty much so we've got we've got services that run on fargate tasks um but then we also use serverless in some cases where we're heavily using aws lambda functions um, what Forge is, is Forge is a new platform as a service that Alassian have provided that is built, I believe, on the back of AWS. Mm. So with Forge, you get things such as like functions as a service. Um, you also, your front end or like your UI mm. code can also be hosted on Atlassian's end. Whereas at the moment, what we're doing with Connect is we're hosting things, we're basically storing things in an S3 bucket, and then we've then got CloudFront to provide some form of caching. Um, so Atlassian are trying to basically make it so that when when cloud developers build products, they don't have to use their own platform, or they have to then use Atlassian's platform. Another um, benefit, apparently, of Forge is that it um, it provides authentication with Jira Cloud automatically and things like that. So it's meant to make things easier. But whilst we found, while some parts might be easier in the future. At this moment in time, we found the platform was a little bit too early when it came to features and things like that. It wasn't particularly feature-rich. So we really struggled at earlier on when we're mm -hmm. so used to a feature-rich product like AWS. Yeah, and I think on top of what Ben said, a big challenge we found is we didn't know exactly what the runtime was under the hood that Atlassian were running the code on. So we were developing our JavaScript and TypeScript and just assuming it was running on Node, but we later found that Atlassian have some bespoke um, environment that it's running on which led to some challenges because some packages wouldn't work or some things wouldn't work as expected um because the modules didn't exist that we thought existed um so we had to develop some workarounds to work on that um and that's a piece that we fed back to Atlassian and I believe they're going to change that to make it easier for developers in future but that tripped us off a few times and took a while to work out you know one of the DevOps predictions that we had for the year was minimum viable architecture it does feel like you know Atlassian is implementing that into practice by you know releasing Forge <laughs> earlier with the minimum viable architecture, so people can give feedback on it, which Adaptive apparently is giving a lot of. Oh, so I was going to say we've we've been in very close collaboration with Atlassian, which has been one great thing about this project. 
Um, so the, the, we've, we've had a Slack channel open and it's been really, the, the people who we have been working at with at Alassian have been really, really helpful. Like we post questions and they immediately answer and they've been really like informative and have taken the feedback. So it, it's, it's been great from that side of things, from the collaboration side. But yeah, there have been a lot of challenges. Yeah, I have to say we've like hit some bugs where Atlassian have re- released a new version um, and we've upgraded to it and then it hasn't worked. We've raised it in the issue adjustments channel and they've jumped straight on it and they fixed it the same day or the next day. So the collaboration has been really fast. So it's been, from that point of view, it's been really good that we work so closely with Atlassian. That's great. So what is the feedback from some of our early adopters from our customers? Are they loving it, hating it? Um, so I think at the moment, customers are getting used to it, but at the moment, the main feedback is it, it doesn't satisfy all their requirements because it doesn't match the same as server um, because we currently don't support custom fields, but we're working on that right now. And hopefully we should be able to release that very soon. Another piece of feedback which we see is that it doesn't support all the issue screens, um, but currently due to the difference in the architecture between cloud and server, um, we're tied on that because, um, as like Ben said, we build on the UI modifications API, which Elastin provide, um, and that only runs on the global create screen, but that's not something we can configure our end. That's something we just have to wait for Elastin to support other screens. So, um, once they support them, our app will just work on those screens, but we're tied and not being able to do that from Elastin's end, which is a, a big difference in developing for cloud to developing for on-premise. Yeah, yeah and I guess, there's um, a minim, minimum viable architecture that we've built for behaviors. Going back to what you were saying, Joven, we're kind of incrementing, we're increasing the amount of features that are going to be available available with behaviors. And it's good to know that, you know, a lot of this feedback is about the feature parity rather than anything else, because given what you were saying about the different platforms and how we stitched it together, a concern of mine would have been about the operational aspects of things, right? I mean, how reliable the application is, especially given how the stitching is done together. From what I'm hearing, I mean, there has been no complaints on that side of things. Yeah, I think I think people are just really happy that it's come to cloud. And then now they're just sort of, like the, the stitching bit wasn't ideal. And I'm, I'm sure it's like not, you know, the best experience for customers when they're installing. I'm sure in an, in an ideal world, we would have built the thing on Connect. And then it would have just been a seamless admin page that the customers would have just seen, they would have clicked on it, and then it, there would be no extra installation process. But it seems like, yeah, it seems like because behavior is, is so important to them, that that kind of, that was like, that's like a small detail now for them. And now it's just like, they want custom fields or customers are saying they want new fields to be worked with, or as Christian was saying, they want it on different screens and things like that. Um, one of the things we are working on at the moment is um, we're working on introducing custom fields, which is something that we're hoping should be out soon so it, the, the feature parity is slowly you know increasing yeah <clears throat> yeah but uh, ben you, you mentioned that the um adding the observability and metrics features and things was, was kind of a frustrating last minute experience like looking back on that is was that was that worth was that worth doing or 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 would you have um would you would would actually releasing and flying blind with that will that would that have actually been acceptable for you given the value that customers are getting from it i think looking back on it whilst whilst it was a, it was a challenge that we weren't really expecting it was i think it was worthwhile it's really useful now to be able to so we the way that we've hooked up the system is that we've got these um, aws cloudwatch metrics and we've got alarms configured to those so i think it's really nice that we've released it and we can like 
we can sort of we can log off and think, okay, well, if something does go wrong, we're going to get notified of it. Um, I think it was worthwhile because at the moment, especially when you know when we're in incidents and things, we can use those metrics to then be like, okay, which part of the system is actually at fault? Um, whereas if we do, if we just use what Forge was providing at the time, where it's like we just get an email where it's like something is wrong, it's kind of not as helpful and it doesn't help us resolve the issues as fast. It's been a long journey, and the uh, thing is, um, you know, pretty much from the inception of the of the cloud version of ScriptRunner. Um, it's something that we've we've wanted to do, and customers customers have been asking for. So it's brilliant to be able to actually um, kind of deliver that and, and meet that meet that need. Yeah. I'm still going to complain about the missing features, but um, unless it's <laughs> up and running, it's it's not like ChatGPT. I cannot rely on ChatGPT now, so. Well, thank you both for joining us, Ben and Christian. It's been really informative having you on the show. It's great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us today um, on another episode of DevOps Decrypted. Um, we hope you've been enjoying the show. Please let us know what you think on social media at Adaptivist. Um, we look forward to keeping the conversation going with you guys there. Um, I'm Romy, and this has been DevOps Decrypted, which is part of the Adaptivist Live podcast network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>